Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Caring on the Go for the November-December 2023 issue. And it's a special focus issue on the topic of diabetes, a very common problem in post-acute and long-term care. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Carrying on the Go, a member of the AMDA On The Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, highlighting our November-December 2023 issue of Caring. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings, through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Beth, welcome back to Carrying On The Go. Thanks so much, Carl. I'm, I'm thrilled to, to be back doing another podcast with you. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to kick off today's session talking about the lead article from page one of the November-December issue by Christine Kilgore entitled, Diabetes Management is Different in Older Adults, Especially Those in Long-Term Care. And uh, that's a great title. and I think that should be sort of the theme of the whole issue. And I wish... Uh, uh, I wish people in the community and, and all over um, could really take that to heart, you know, that we're not looking for a, a wonderful hemoglobin A1C of, of six something. Um, but anyway, up to 30% of our residents in nursing homes have diabetes, and there are a lot of new options for treatment these days. So Beth, what were your key points for our listeners from this article and what issues did it bring up for you? Well, I really enjoyed Christine's article. She talked to a lot of experts in the field and um, covered tons of issues. So if you only have time to read one article, that would probably be the one. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, many of us all agree that the primary focus in working with patients with diabetes and post-acute and long-term care is really on goals of care um, and making sure that goals of care are individualized for diabetes care to account for things such as the patient's medical comorbidities, their preferences, how engaged they may be in self-care activities or not. Also thinking about their function, cognition, and quality of life issues. So all of those things come into play when determining kind of best practices for that individual patient for diabetes. And I think there's agreement there. Um, the other important points that I think were made throughout the article, um, you know, we know about considering relaxing treatment goals and really trying to simplify 
uh, treatment regimens that are more complex with a major focus on trying to reduce the risk of hypoglycemia. So that would be minimizing sliding scale insulin or doing away with it as well as sulfonylureas. And thinking about um, whether finger sticks are really needed in your patient who's been stable for some time, you know, probably not. Um, and um, one of the um, um, experts indicated how uh, we need more randomized controlled trials in the area of diabetes care in post-acute and long-term care settings because most of the recommendations are really based off a younger, uh, less frail population. Another important point that um, I liked was how in older adults, the hemoglobin A1C may not always be the best indicator of glycemic control, um, particularly for people who are older with multiple comorbidities, because there's other factors that impact the turnover of red blood cells. Also, looking just at a hemoglobin A1C doesn't really give you any information about hypoglycemia. And um, the authors described a couple of studies where, you know, they were showing uh, kind of high A1Cs and people were still having episodes of hyperglycemia. The, the next point really focuses on considering at, um, trying some of the newer medications. Um, there's really little use of the uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, and the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, so thinking about whether or not um, those might be reasonable options. And, um, you know, also we talk, they talked about the kind of uh, promise, but also challenges related to continuous glucose monitoring and post-acute and long-term care and the issues about um, really looking at the financial viability of that. And then lastly, they kind of topped it all off with emphasizing the interprofessional team and training all staff to really be part of good diabetes care in terms of recognizing hypoglycemia, knowing how to use glucagon, um, making sure we're doing good skin checks and foot exams, and um, all of it really um, a helpful reminder for many or maybe some new information for some. Yeah, great article. And, uh, you know, you hit on so many of the good points there. Um, I do think, you know, hypoglycemia, we really want to avoid it, right? We, we certainly would rather, I, at least for me, I'd rather have somebody be, you know, 260 than 60, right? And uh, and on the hemoglobin A1Cs, right, you say somebody, maybe, you know, they've got a hemoglobin A1C of 8.5 and some well-meaning clinician says, oh, well, I guess we better kick up the, uh, the uh, you know, anti-diabetes agents. And this is somebody who's dipping down into the forties at night, but is in the three hundreds during the day. And, you know, the problem is, is not, uh, well, it's dangerous. Let's just say to, uh, to just treat the A1C. So, uh, thanks for all that. Um, anyway, the next article is from below the fold on page one. This is written by doctors Pagali, Pallet, and Poles. Uh, and this one's titled Demystifying Diabetes Care Transitions. And hey, while I love a little mystery, uh, I am all for demystifying the treatment of diabetes, especially as it relates to things like eliminating sliding scale insulin, which is so prevalent in patients transferring into nursing homes from the acute care hospital. I mean, almost every diabetic comes in on that and I do my best to stamp it out, but I know there are a lot of 
other attending physicians who say, hey, you know, that's what they sent over from the hospital. Who am I to override that and that sort of thing? And uh, there are a lot of sort of transition-related issues. Uh, so, Beth, uh, what were your thoughts on this piece? So I think one of the major um, challenges with care, transi care transitions um, for people with diabetes that the article highlighted were um, dealing with formulary differences between the hospital and the skilled nursing facility um, because the hospital may have a particular um, uh, SGLT2 um, inhibitor or a GLP-1 receptor agonist on their formulary and the skilled nursing facility may have something else. And so trying to you know, I guess if there's a way to reconcile that if possible or at least think about um, um, you know, where that patient's going to be going and, and will they be able to afford that medicine on discharge. Also, um, thinking about the different patterns of glucose monitoring that happened in the hospital versus in the SNF. Um, hospitals are really using intensive glucose monitoring, um, whereas the SNFs don't have quite that same capacity. And um, I know that uh, the authors did a nice job of kind of highlighting things that the hospital can do and things that the SNF can do. And and I found yeah. that to be um, so helpful as well. Yeah. I loved the way the article gave those kind of specific lists of what all of us can do. Uh, and yeah, so many of these newer medications carry significantly less risk of hypoglycemia than insulin or sulfonylureas. Um, but I feel kind of like what we see with direct oral anticoagulants, you know, and people that are still stuck uh, using warfarin, that these newer agents may be underutilized in our setting for a variety of reasons. And I love what you said about the, you know, the finger stick monitoring. Uh, we don't, probably for a great majority of our diabetic residents, we don't need to be doing finger sticks four times a day. It's a huge waste of nursing time, uh, you know, and then the actual equipment and so on. Uh, and it, most importantly, it's, not pleasant for our patients. So um, uh, is there other stuff that we can do, Dr. Gallock, to change the inertia that kind of facilitates these, uh, carrying on these antiquated and sometimes harmful practices in diabetes transitions? So I think, you know, kind of back to the main point of the first article, how we have to treat our patients in, in our skilled nursing facilities and our nursing homes with individualized plans of care. Um, and making and acknowledging that it's particularly if they're coming out of the hospital where they may not have been eating very well as they enter the sniff that hopefully is going to be improving and acknowledging that some changes are going to have to happen as appetite improves and then the other um, major major thing is making sure you're updating med reconciliation you know you're doing good med reconciliation um, so that at the hospital level, the hospitalists are including not only the changes that they made, but what the patient came in on. And then at the SNF, you may be adjusting things further and passing that information along to the PCP so that they can do fine tuning, particularly for those SNF residents who are going to be going home. Um, and thinking about when the patient does go home, what can they reliably manage? Because this is going to decrease um, the risk of readmission. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point for our post-acute uh, residents who are going to be going home. 
Uh, and I just, in my long-term residence, I love, you know, I usually don't completely eliminate finger sticks. I might do it, you know, twice a day, once a week or something like that, just to sort of keep an eye on it and have them call me if it gets over 200 or something. But um, I can tell you that the residents are super grateful for that. And uh, anyway, um, so next we're going to discuss your caring collaborative column on page two of this issue, Beth, entitled how I implemented what I learned about diabetes in this issue of Caring for the Ages. And I love that you acknowledge the impact our periodical can have on our own clinical practices. I can remember many times when I was editor-in-chief and I was reviewing the articles pre-publication, I would learn something new and valuable. And, you know, even if it was not out of some scholarly, uh, you know, randomized placebo-controlled study. And uh, so uh, anyway, please tell our listeners uh, how you've learned some new tricks, perhaps, from the pearls that are uh, scattered throughout this issue. So while I was reviewing um, articles for this issue, it was things that I kind of knew, but it brought it all kind of um, right up to the present. And I had seen a patient um, around that time who had been um, having some struggles with depressed mood and behavioral symptoms in the context of his dementia. But he had also had a lot of um, poor appetite symptoms and some pretty significant weight loss. He also was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Um, and some of his most prominent and consistent symptoms were abdominal discomfort and diarrhea. And they had been worsening over the past two months. And he wasn't eating. Let me guess, he was on metformin. Yes. <laughs> well, the interesting thing was not only was he on it, but it had been increased. <laughs> oh, boy. While he was hospitalized. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I go in to see residents and focus mostly on their dementia. And, you know, so I'm looking at the psychiatric meds and I, I'm looking at them holistically, but I was like, oh. I think it's the metformin because I pulled all the data and saw all the time. I made a little timeline and it was great. I remembered kind of Christine's article and Dr. Brandt's article and um, all of those good kind of good, ref you know, refresher for me. And I reached out to the PCP because this hemoglobin A1C was a 5.6. <laughs> And um, we were able to adjust it back down. And I can tell you, I saw him recently and he's gaining a little weight and he's much, you know, he, he's uh, much more cooperative with care and he doesn't complain about the belly at all. But everyone was assuming it was psychosomatic, that it was part of his depression. Uh when um, wow. you know, really it was the metformin. And I know Steve Levinson, um, in, in some of his articles on regulation focuses on this, like first think about the drugs they're taking and, uh, you know, make sure that that's not the cause of the behaviors or the problem. So it was, it was just a fun yeah. little thing. And it, it, I always like it when it works out well in the yeah. end. <laughs> in the real world, right? I mean, that's yep. so great. And yep. yeah, I'm thinking with an A1C of 5.6, uh, it, maybe he doesn't really need any metformin at all. But Yeah, uh, but we, we started by just decreasing it, and uh, he is yeah. eating better now, so. Um, yeah, yeah we'll, maybe it's. We'll see, we'll see how he does when, when things move along. Yeah, and I, and I love that. I, I mean, it's just instead of, uh, 
getting into this whole prescribing cascade that we try to avoid in geriatrics, right? I mean, that this would be so easy to, oh, well, he needs the PPI, you know, or, and, and uh, just all of that. So I'm really happy to hear that uh, uh, the information you, uh, you know, when you were reviewing this issue uh, actually helped a, a person. That's, that's always what we're striving for. Yep. It makes a good uh, teaching case too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. This episode will return after this special message. Join Anda on November 17th, 2023 for a brand new virtual symposium, Finding Your Value in Evolving Payment Models. Speakers will tackle issues such as defining value-based reimbursement models, evolution and trends of traditional CPD coding, impact of diagnosis coding and documentation on PDPM and value-based models ICD-10HCC scoring, Value-Based Medicine Reimbursement Perspective The Ground View Ask the experts, where are your opportunities in value-based reimbursement? Visit paltc.org for details and to register. And now back to our program. Um, all right, so the next article uh, is uh, going to be AMDA board member Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda's interesting piece entitled unpacking geographic health disparities and this you know it does have to do with diabetes and and other things and i have to say i just uh really love diane's practical suggestions on how each of us can become kind of more self-aware when we're when we're looking at the way we practice and when we're considering the life experiences that our residents from different backgrounds have had and so it's a fascinating area to explore um I do worry about kind of value-laden metrics like quality of life. I mean, because it's just means so many different things to different people. Although I think we, you know, we all agree that we have a certain uh, idea of what constitutes a good quality of life for ourselves. But uh, anyway, can you please share your takeaways from Diane's article, Beth? So Diane told a story about growing up in rural Georgia and her experiences- Yes, her experiences as a young a young person seeing um, relatives and friends and people in her community that had a lot of negative health outcomes related to diabetes in terms of amputations. And um, so it really led her to um, want to look more closely at um, health disparities that we see particularly related to diabetes in rural communities and other underserved areas. Um, so um, she also taught me something new about a wonderful resource that I didn't even know existed. It's called the Neighborhood Atlas, and it's developed by the Center for Health Disparities Research at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, and she gives a link to it. And what it does is it helps you to understand the community in which you practice in terms of health disparities and, um, you know, by zip code. So all you need to know is the zip code. Um, and she's encouraging all of us to really look at that, um, you know, in, in our own areas where we, we practice and to see where we can make a difference. I um, had a, a colleague several years ago who, um, I, I live in Maryland, and there's a small island that you know, has no bridge access, and it's essentially a rural community, uh, very mm -hmm. isolated, and you have to take a, um, you know, a, a ferry or whatever, a boat over to the island. Long story short, she did an intervention with some diabetes education 
and um, did a simple intervention about working with the Coast Guard to get them to bring um, over fresh fruits and vegetables for the little store on the island oh. because everything was canned and processed. So just thinking about little things like that um, can really make a big difference. So. Wow. That's a cool story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, great. So uh, that is going to pretty much wrap it up. Uh, I want to mention a few other things. There's so much additional great content in this issue. Uh, Vicki Nalls' piece about diabetic foot ulcers, Joanne Caldy's article about continuous glucose monitoring. And uh, these are obviously becoming more readily available for patients who are appropriate for close monitoring and, you know, in whom that might be uh, appropriate or required. Uh, then there's a pharmacy column comparing classes of drugs for diabetes and Dr. Salami's article that pretty much comes right out and says, with research support, that a DPP-4 inhibitor like the, the glyptins uh, is non-inferior to long-acting insulin. And uh, that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. Uh, and of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Kim Callanan's article updating our readers on the new and ongoing work of the National Pulse Collaborative, which I happen to be president of. Uh, Dr. Gallick, before we close, do you have any final comments or wisdom to share on these or any of the other articles that uh, resonated with you? I really like this focus on um, you know, the clinical management of a condition that we see so, so frequently. And I think AMDA just does some wonderful work. And I believe they're coming out with um, an updated uh, pocket guide and an updated CPG on diabetes management in post-acute and long-term care in the near future. Yeah. Um, I also want to mention um, another article that wasn't related to diabetes, but also quite good. Um, Alice Bonner and her colleague, um, Isaac Longobardi, um, wrote an article, Building a Stronger Direct Care Workforce, the Moving Forward Nursing Home Quality Co Coalition is taking action now. So I'd encourage people to, to check that out as well, because it gives a little update about moving forward. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they've uh, the website has lots of great information about the the seven areas they're working on. I encourage any of us who who uh, really care about nursing home reform to take a look at that. Um, all righty, well, that is going to wrap it up for the November December twenty twenty three Carrying on the Go podcast, under the leadership of editor in chief Dr. Beth Gallick and managing editor Tess Bird. Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look at this outstanding November-December diabetes-themed issue, available as always without a paywall at www.caringfortheages.com, and please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. Meanwhile, thanks to our listeners for your support and for the wonderful work you do every day. And thanks again to Dr. Gallick for spending your time with Caring on the Go. And now, until next time, which I guess won't be until next year, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go, wishing you a great holiday season and a healthy, joy-filled 2024 ahead. If you are a physician, 
and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Thank you.